0: Why do we hate disability? Why does design neglect disability? How do disabled people tap into their creativity to make their worlds accessible? I'm Bon Ku, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Laura Malden. She is a writer, sociologist, and interdisciplinary scholar who's based in Brooklyn, New York. She's currently an associate professor at the University of Connecticut laura's research focuses on disability care and technology her first book is called made to hear cochlear implants and raising deaf children it documents the structure and culture of the systems we've designed to try to make deaf kids hear currently laura is writing a nonfiction book on spousal caregiving that weaves together research memoir and cultural commentary She's published numerous articles and multiple outlets, and most recently, she launched a new website called disabilityathome.org. It documents the daily hacks that disabled people and caregivers have devised to make life work at home. Laura, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so excited that you're on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Vaughn. I'm excited too.
0: I've been reading a lot of your essays. I love them all. In one of them, you say, disability is a part of life and we hate it. What did you mean by that when you wrote that?
1: I meant that, well, let's take the first part. Disability is a part of life, right? Yeah. So I think that a lot of people tend to think of themselves not as disabled if they aren't, and Mm -hmm. they feel like they don't have a relationship to it. Perhaps someone that they care about becomes disabled and they care for them and they maybe start to develop a relationship with this idea or concept of disability through that. But then over time, the fact is our bodies change. And if you hadn't had a disability prior, as you age, it is highly, highly likely that you will. And we often think about old age as something sort of separate from disability, Mm -hmm. but It's just the process of aging into disability if you weren't already disabled.
0: Yeah. Some
1: some people are disabled and aging. Some people are aging into disability. The fact is that's just a part of living in these bodies that we have. It's just the simple fact of being a physical being here.
0: And yeah, I would argue if you live on planet earth, you or someone close to you is going to experience disability. Yes. 100%. Uh, You cannot avoid it.
1: Exactly. It's a part of life. And the second part of that statement is we hate it. And I mean that in a, I think a couple of different ways. I think that we hate that reality of our bodies. I think there's a lot of existential dread around that Mm. sort of individually. I think collectively that hatred sort of manifests itself in denial in not being able to talk about it, having shame about it, thinking it's something that shouldn't be talked about. And then I think on a like even bigger sort of macro level policy-wise, we can't even plan for it because we don't want to talk about it because mm. we hate it. And by that, there's like this other layer of hating it, which is more about, we live in a society that's values productivity, Mm. values independence and autonomy. And we tend to think of those things as in conflict with disability Mm. when that need not be the case. It's just that we have a difficult time collectively imagining ways to dissolve the barriers between autonomy and productivity and things like this and disability. So I think we hate it in the sense that for us, it often represents or signals dependence, which Mm. we sort of abhor, right? Yeah. And so there's this notion that we hate about disability too, and that shows up in our policies around care and how we don't, for example, fund home care Mm. adequately. Yeah. We don't take care of disabled folks because I hate to say it, but societally, we hate them. So there's this idea of we all sort of individually live in this denial and hatred of it. And then that manifests itself in the way that we treat disabled people as a Mm, whole.
0: I have had a lot of experience with disability over the past year. Someone very, very close to me was not able to walk without pain. And it went through this process of how I can help her in her daily life. It's been one of the most maddening experiences in my life. Uh, at one point she needed a wheelchair and trying to get a wheelchair was almost impossible. You would think it's easy. There's so many people in wheelchairs, but no, you, needed, like, you cannot go online and buy one. I And I call, you know, I'm a physician. So I was like, well, let me use my clout. You know, I and we went to, a, I called a medical supply company. It seemed like it was a little shady. They were surprised. I called them. They said, no, you can't just buy, come here and buy one. You need like a PTOT eval, you need a doctor's prescription, we need to fit you. And that can take like six months. Yes. And I was floored. And I went on Amazon. And I was like, oh, here's a wheelchair like that I can buy. And I and I know in an essay you wrote that Amazon has become, quote, a de facto medical supply company. And I was curious to know kind of how you came upon that insight into this community of how they use Amazon?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. So when I was doing the research for this book, I not only was getting photographs that we like I have on the Disability at Home website, but I was also- Which
0: doing- is a great, great website. I want to give a shout out to it right now. It's called disabilityathome.org. Definitely check it out. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes and in our newsletter for that.
1: Yeah, so when I was doing the research- the website was actually this surprising creative endeavor that came later, but mm. I was actually asking questions during all of my interviews with people across the country. So I spoke with 44 caregivers and when possible, their disabled partners or spouse as well across 22 States. Wow. And almost every single one of them spoke about Amazon
0: It, it
1: out. came up in our conversation. And I started to see this happening over and over again where people were like, well, I was asked to do all this wound care, for example, but they stopped sending enough supplies or insurance would only cover so much. And that was the cheapest place to find uh, dressings and other supplies. Mm -hmm. So people ended up buying in bulk off of Amazon or another person, just to go back to your example of helping someone in your life with walking, they encountered the same thing. So in that essay where I talk about Amazon appeared in the baffler, that baffler piece, at the same time, a piece came out in the nation, I believe it is. Mm. And it was a piece about how private equity has come into the durable medical equipment market Mm. and how our federal government does contract work. So they sort of put out there that companies can Do durable medical equipment supply and they do these bids and things like that. But private equity firms are getting involved in this. So it means that Mm. they can have a lower bid with the government. So they get the contract, but it means like much worse service on the user end. So that's what it we're talking about with six months wait, you know, just to get a wheelchair. But it takes months to get the PT eval, the OT eval, the fitting, the corporations like representative has to come and talk to you and fit you and do all this stuff and your weight. And so all of that takes months. And then you have to wait another set of six months. And if you need a wheelchair to get around, you are in an emergency situation. Yes. Like get around without that, it.
0: That was the most frustrating part. It was like, she needs a wheelchair now. She cannot wait one year to get a wheelchair. Yeah.
1: And this is what I mean when I say disability is a part of life and we hate it. And yeah. it comes out in things like that. It comes out in these processes that are just profoundly. It's like we think if you don't use a wheelchair, you think, oh, maybe that's inconvenient. No, that is absolutely, utterly like impedes you living your life on a like every single day. We just don't seem to care about that. And that's one of the things, you know, I hope to sort of draw attention to. Like, how can we,
0: how can we like individually or collectively as a society? plan for and design for disability is there a way to do that because i got caught in it was such a reactive situation and i'm like and even with the resources that i have that i'm a physician i'm tapped into i have this privilege of being in the medical community and it was still difficult and i can't imagine someone without my resources being able to live life with a disability it's shocking
1: so I'll speak to that. I'll just want to say one more thing about the wheelchair thing having to do with Amazon. Mm-hmm. So this is where people would get on Amazon and search for a wheelchair that they could get delivered the next day. Yeah. Did it fit perfectly? Did it, you know, was it the safest? Was it the most effective? No. But did it act as a stopgap measure? Yes. And, and that's what people were doing. So I had one person in my research I was talking to who was rolling his wife around on the seat of a rollator, which is not like it's, you know,
0: rollators
1: Rollators are different. They're not walkers, but they might, some people might see them as walkers because they Mm. sort of look like that, Mm -hmm. but they have the little seat that you can sit down on. And so he was, his wife was sitting on that and he was just pushing her down the street and they lived in Philly and cobblestone streets and uneven surface, you know, this is not safe, right? This is not not safe. And, you know, it's just astounding to me that this is people are having to get around like this, but Mm. to go back to your point, this is so deeply systemic Mm. that even someone such as yourself with every, you know, privilege afforded in terms of being able to navigate these systems, understanding systems, Being able to navigate a system that's inherently unjust is, it's like, well, okay, I can navigate this, but it doesn't meet my needs, right? So, you know, the question really is, how do we collectively deal with this? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'll just say this, I'm not a (laughs) policymaker, but it seems to me that there are really basic things that could be done. Mm. Such as, you know, how about making sure private equity firms aren't in the durable medical equipment business? Mm. How about sourcing locally? There was a long history of disabled people, particularly in the Bay Area, who were doing wheelchair repair for each other and Whoa, wheelchair so cool. repair, repair spots, shops. And I mean, there's the thing is, is that you're trying to navigate the system to go back to your example for your friend and doing this. But the fact is, is that disabled people in community with each other and collectively Mm. have been managing on the outskirts of these systems because they're so bad. Mm. So these communities have been doing this since forever, right? And it's mostly communities of color, disabled folks of color that are working to collectively care for each other outside of the systems. And I think. We have a lot to learn from that. And I think one of the main, here's the deal with the website. I say on there in the about page that we just need to talk about this stuff. We don't need to talk about it in some kind of dramatic way. Mm -hmm. It's just a fact of life. So let's just discuss it and strategize it rather than, you know, power in our shame about, what our bodies can or cannot do and to me it's like all bodies are good bodies let's figure out what these bodies need these other bodies need and sort of practically talk about getting those needs met because everyone deserves to have their needs met yeah so that's part of what the website is doing so that we can collectively share that information and if people start to emerge from their their shame about their impairment A lot of people, I have a friend who I sent my website to and she said, oh, this is so great. My aging parents are going to really need this. My mom is a caregiver to my dad. I'm so excited. And she sent it to them and they said, oh, that's really nice, but we're not disabled. Mm. We don't need this. We're not disabled. Mm. So I think a part of the problem is that there are so many people with impairments that would qualify as being disabled, but wouldn't Mm -hmm. ever identify as such. And I'm not here to tell people how they have to identify. That's not the point, Mm -hmm. but if we can't even talk about it or see disability in ourselves, then how can we collectively share knowledge or how can we Mm -hmm. build community and if we can't build community, then how do we affect system change? So for me, it's about those kinds of grassroots one-by-one conversations.
0: Great. There's a couple of things I want to hit. So we've been talking about your website, but I don't think we described it. Yeah. Can you describe oh. what disabilityathome.org is?
1: Yeah. So disabilityathome.org is a website that came out of my interviews with people across the country. And what I asked them to do was I asked people to send me photos of anything they use in caregiving. And that was a very wide open solicitation. And I ended up with more than 500 photos of people's homes and spaces and objects that they use. And so the site takes a sample of that, a subset of that 500, Mm -hmm. and narrows it down by category. So disability at home takes this collection of photos and puts them into categories such as bathroom, communication tools, customizing equipment, grab bars, grabbing tools, incontinence tools, kitchen, medication, navigating, and repurposing. Mm. So I'll just give a couple of examples. If we go to customizing equipment and you look around there, You'll see that people, for example, might have put a bed rail on their bed at home, like a safety rail. Mm -hmm. This is sometimes used to prevent people from falling out, Mm -hmm. also used as a kind of something they can grip and push on to push themselves up, things like this. But if you spend a lot of time in bed, people customize their bed rails by hanging little you know, pockets that velcroed over them, a cup holder, a way to have all of their sort of daily needs, you know, keep your e-reader, your Kindle or, you know, ebook reader, whatever mm-hmm. with you, your phone, a book, a crossword puzzle, things like this. People would customize it. Other people, for example, one person in Florida, their wheelchair kept... The brake kept coming loose such that it would open and Mm. put the brake on when he didn't want it to be on. And so he used a zip tie to keep it open. The other brake worked fine. So he could customize his equipment as needed as it developed its own, you know, old cars and things like that, right? They have personality. So we just kind of tweak them to meet our needs. So things like that are on there. I have a whole section on grab bars, which are a really important, you know, tens of thousands of people actually die every year because they've fallen often in the bathroom.
0: Yeah. I see this all the time in the middle of the night in the emergency room, someone comes in and they've fallen and broken their hip in the bathroom.
1: That's exactly right. And millions of people go every year and seek treatment in it for exactly that reason. And tens of thousands of those die. And it's because, you know, these homes homes, generally speaking, don't have grab bars. Less than 1% of our housing stock in the US is accessible. So that is just absolutely mind boggling. And Um, I, I
0: imagine it's harder than to retrofit grab bars into a bathroom because you would need like a contractor, maybe like an architect to help out or something like that.
1: Oftentimes, you do need that, but the website also has some solutions that you help you get around those kinds of things. And of course, with the site, you know, the disclaimer is I'm just showing you what other people have done. I can't, you know, speak to what everyone's situation is, but some people I wanted to document were using what we call suction grab bars. So they're temporary, Mm -hmm. those work to varying degrees. And you have to be very careful with them because, you know, they aren't installed, but just suctioned onto the surface. But for some people, they were renters, for example. And so they could not actually alter their bathroom. Other people called in contractors to put them in. It can be very expensive. Another person got around the expense in terms of the equipment by using piping gas pipes or what they're called gas nipples. They're basically like three quarter of an inch pipes that have threading on either end. Mm. And you can get them for just a couple bucks at the, at the hardware store. Mm. And so people will go and get, I, and I detail this on the site, all the different pieces needed for that, that can be, cost just under 10 bucks. Wow. Whereas the grab bars can be very expensive, especially if they're the kind of nicer, fancier looking ones, things yeah. like that.
0: I love all the DIY hacks and the imagination that I see. You describe disabled people as creative, but why do so many people fail to see the creativity in disabled people?
1: Well, I think in the first case is that people assume that disability coincides with Incompetence. And one of the things that I was trying to show with this project is that it's the system that's incompetent. Mm -hmm. And it's our cultural devaluation of disability that is the sign of incompetence. Because if you look at what disabled people and caregivers are doing every single day, they are the ones that are competent, Mm -hmm. like hyper competent and figuring out how to move through the world that was not built for them in ways that work for them. And that Mm -hmm. takes profound creativity every single day, every moment of the day, just moving through the world. Mm. So to me, it's about documenting that competence and that agency, that disabled people have agency. And we often don't think of that. Mm.
0: I love this quote from an essay. You say, disabled people's hacks wouldn't be so necessary if more attention were paid to the actual needs of disabled people in the design process of homes, objects, infrastructure, I'm curious to know your thoughts on why does design so often neglect the needs of disabled people?
1: Well, I think like many industries, disabled people aren't in positions of leadership such that disabled people's lived experience and expertise aren't driving what gets done. Mm. And instead, it's often able-bodied people's imagination of what disabled life is like. That drives what gets done. And that imagination is typically wrong. And because we live in a society that devalues disability and thinks that disabled people are incompetent, are pitiable, and these kinds Mm. of things. So the imagination work that gets done is informed by that. Mm. And so there's a lot of imagining of what a disabled person's problem might be So one of the things I contrast the site with is how a lot of tech teams will come out with their latest gadget, like a sign language glove that purports to take, you know, you put on gloves and it will translate sign language into English. And deaf people are like, I don't need that. I just... (laughs) You can learn sign or use captions or there's all kinds of other things. That's ridiculous. But that's hearing people's imagination of what deaf people want.
0: You call these solutions high-tech band-aids?
1: Yes, (laughs) high-tech band-aids. Liz Jackson, the disabled design critic, talks about these things as disability dongles, which is Mm, such a great term and a much better way of talking about it. And I feel like... Another big example is wheelchairs that climb stairs. Hmm. And disabled people are like, I don't need this. This is dangerous. I would never use this. I just build some ramps and like <laughs> just make the world accessible. Stop building so many stairs. And yet these tech teams like come out and they're like, look at this. This is this great invention of, you know, this stair climbing wheelchair and disabled people are just like, I mean, it's just so infuriating. It ends up being used as like virtue signal that, mm. oh, look, we're paying attention to these poor people's needs. But are the design teams you know led by mm. disabled people? No, it's led by this imagination of what disability might be. So I don't think that disabled people would have to come up with all these hacks to get through daily life if disabled people were able to lead on design.
0: Yeah. I'm curious to know, Do you have any examples of companies or organizations getting it right around designing for disability?
1: No, I don't. (laughs)
0: Oh, that's so depressing.
1: Nothing comes to mind. Hmm.
0: Well, that is a great prompt of unmet need for our
1: (laughs) listening audience. I hope I get that right. I mean, you know what? Maybe there's something I don't know about. You know, there. Yeah. Maybe there's something I don't know about. I will add this. There are a lot of things that were never designed to be used as accessibility tools, but are. Oh, like like what? So, I mean, I want to give a shout out to Imani Barberin, who is this amazing disabled woman who she does speaking gigs and advocacy and writes about disability issues. And she's on Twitter and she last year, put out this tweet with the hashtag accessibility at home and said, what are your hacks? What are the things that you use that are accessibility tools for you? And there were hundreds of things written in, for example, Roombas, which of course we aren't going to talk about Amazon's purchase of Roomba, but
0: those like vacuum cleaners. The vacuums, right. Yeah.
1: Because it helps with cleaning. Like Mm -hmm. if you have a mobility impairment fatigue, things like this, then a tool like that can be great to help keep your home clean. Yeah. Other people were like, oh, I put a bar stool in my kitchen so I can sit when I'm at the stove, Mm -hmm. right? So it's Mm -hmm. right there. But was the bar tool intended to be used as a quote unquote accessibility tool? Not necessarily, but it's the ways that people use things that end up being that way. Mm Hmm. And there's many examples of that on the site in terms of under my repurposing category. People repurpose things like painter's tape. I could write a whole book on painter's tape. It's great. Painter's tape is great. You can re-stick it. It doesn't leave residue. It's easy to work with. Folks with one hand can... There you go. You've got your
0: Yep. (laughs) I mean, folks
1: with one hand, if you're trying to sign a document and you need to keep that document still, you can just tape it real quick. You can also use a clipboard. Clipboards are another way to do that. But you can tape it real quick. One of the examples on the site is taping up something that you're trying to screw into the wall. So you can just tape it up. And then if you only have one hand, then you don't have the second hand to to hold whatever object you're, you're attaching to the wall up. So yeah, people repurposed all kinds of stuff like silicone trivets, for example, if you have one hand, it can be difficult to put on a, this is for cooking. It can Uh be difficult to put on an oven mitt. One of the people I was talking to, he had to use his teeth to hold the oven mitt in his mouth so he could slide his hand into it. And he said to heck with this and got these silicone trivets, which are just like corrugated, you know, they're, they're textured and he could just pick it up and use it to grab whatever thing he needed to grab. So those kinds of things where they're not, that wasn't necessarily designed for that use, but it ends up being an accessibility tool.
0: Tell us about the family caregiver community. You write a lot about this community and the unmet needs in that community.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I could say anything about sort of the distillation of what my book is going to talk about and what I found in my research, which is we devalue caregivers because we devalue the people they care for. So if we don't value disabled people, why would we value the people that are caring for them? And in the, the US, we don't have a strong home care infrastructure. 80% of disabled folks live at home in their communities with their families, and only a very small percentage of them get publicly funded home care supports through Medicaid, because it's horribly difficult to qualify for Medicaid. And then there's years long wait lists to get home care services. So it falls on family members. Mm -hmm. And the reason it falls on family members is because we don't value the people that they're caring for. So we have no system in place and we therefore rely on unpaid family caregivers. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm trying to talk about family caregivers as part of disability community as well, because they're also circulating information with each other. They're often in, a lot of people are in Facebook groups or disease specific groups or spousal caregiver groups, like the Well Spouse Association, for example, it's a national organization and they might have support groups and they're sharing information and they're sharing equipment. There's even I think there's a group page that lets you I'm done with this wheelchair or I don't need this walker anymore. Or, you know, people will post the items that they're done with and then they can pass it along to another person. So the point for me is that we're all in relation to each other and that caregivers and disabled people are not in opposition Mm. or don't have to be. And in fact, a lot of caregivers are themselves disabled so mm. and a lot of disabled folks are caring for their partner right back you know so i really don't like this bifurcation mm. of disabled people and caregivers so i'm trying to talk about them together yeah as creating community in different ways but still creating community around disability knowledge and i think that a lot of caregivers similar to the general public don't want to talk about disability per se That that's not something they may identify with or say, oh, I'm a part of a disability community. I don't know that they would say that, Mm. but I'm trying to talk about their knowledge as disability knowledge as well. Because when we start talking about disability as as knowledge, as culture, as practices, as community, that's how we combat this idea that it's this individual, tragic, shameful thing. That in Mm. fact, we're all in it. So let's just talk about it.
0: Yeah. And how big is this community in the U.S.?
1: Of caregivers? Yep. Okay. So from the latest report from the American Association of Retired Persons, or the AARP, they put out a report in 2020. There's more than 53 million family caregivers in the U.S. Oh, my
0: gosh. That is a huge number.
1: It's a huge number. It's up 10 million just in the last five years, and it's expected to keep going up. Because people are aging into disability, people are living longer. We have more sophisticated medical technologies that allow people with chronic illnesses or conditions to live for much longer. People are surviving cancer, but then living with impairments for the rest of their lives because of it. These are all great things, but we're not paying attention to the rising number of disabled people in the U.S. and therefore the rising number of family caregivers. like Those two things are happening in concert with each other.
0: Hmm. I'm curious to know how you got into this field of work. You studied linguistics in college, and you have a PhD in sociology.
1: Okay, here's the deal. So when I was growing up, I learned sign language from my deaf friends. I went to school at a school that had a lot of deaf students. I later I did. I studied linguistics in college, but then I went to Gallaudet, which is the only liberal arts university for the deaf in the world. And where, where I, is that at? that's in Washington, DC. Okay. So I did my master's in deaf studies there and decided I just needed to know more. And so I went and got a PhD in sociology. And when I got to New York to do this, I met my now late partner, And she was diagnosed with relapsed leukemia, Mm -hmm. ALL, during the second semester of grad school for me when I was getting my PhD. And so I became her caregiver for the next five years, just about about four years and 11 months later, she passed away. So I was her caregiver for, for a very long time. And I was at the same time studying medical sociology and writing a lot about what we were going through and spending most of my time at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And she developed many impairments. She had severe incapacitating chronic conditions. She was never well again. And on a trip one time, because we tried to go and do things, she had a chest port and I did home infusions often. I mean, it ranged, but let's say once a week. Mm -hmm. And one time we were on a trip and we needed to do the infusion and we'd brought, you know, the saline bags and the, and the meds and everything, but we didn't bring our IV pole. Cause that's not really something that we could easily travel with. Mm-hmm. So I basically pulled the shoelace out of her shoe, ran the shoelace through the hole at the top of the bag. That's for yeah. hanging it on the pole. And instead ran the shoelace through it, tied it on the shower curtain rod in the hotel bathroom. And we just hung out for a while. I have this story. But it didn't occur to me until I was actually working on this project, which was Mm -hmm. absolutely informed by this experience, that we were getting creative in that moment. And that when I started seeing what other people were doing, I thought, oh my gosh, we're all just getting along. Like We're all just trying to get through and figure things out. But the project started because I eventually over time and reflecting on that experience, I knew that I wasn't the only one. I'm not the only person this has happened to. There's more than 53 million other people besides me. And I wanted to systematically investigate that and try to figure out what are the patterns for people's experiences. And that's why I decided to do this book project. Mm -hmm. And the book is going to sort of weave together research reportage and memoir and some cultural commentary in there because I got opinions. So- That's how that happened, is it really is an outgrowth of my my own personal experience merged with a training that taught me to look for patterns. That's how we got here.
0: Thank you for sharing that story. Thank you for being an amazing storyteller of the creativity in this community for reducing the stigma associated with disability. And I can't wait for your book. Do you have an anticipated release date around? Well,
1: so the book is in progress and we're getting ready to submit to editors. It has the working title Care Nation. That may change, but it is probably three quarters of the way done at this point. So I think I could have it done in the next year. And then it's just, you know, a matter of waiting for it to get made.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll have to have you back on. Oh, gladly. Published. Yay gladly thank you for your time it was just amazing hearing your story your journey thank you for sharing that laura
1: oh i so appreciate being here thanks for listening
0: i loved loved speaking with laura follow her on twitter at m-a-u-l-d-i-n underscore l-a-u-r-a and reach out to me on twitter and instagram on twitter i can be found at b-o-n-k-u on instagram at d-r-b-o-n-k-u design lab would not be possible if it weren't for our amazing hard-working producer rob Puglisi. our theme music was created by emmanuel houston and the cover design by eden Liu. see you next week